Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Dr. Sophie Duncan. Dr. Duncan is Research Fellow and Dean for Welfare at Magdalene College at the University of Oxford. Dr. Duncan's research interests encompass early modern Victoria, Victorian and contemporary drama and has written extensively about William Shakespeare. Dr. Duncan has served as a historical advisor in theater, radio, and television, including for the BBC, the Kiln Theater, the New Vic, and the Kenneth Branagh Theater Company. She is the author of Shakespeare's Women, Shakespeare's Props, Memory, and Cognition, Searching for Juliet, the Lives and Deaths of Shakespeare's First Tragic Heroine. And today we'll be looking at the relationship of Shakespeare, the great bard, and the Jewish people and the Jews. Um, Dr. Duncan, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. It's really lovely to be speaking to you. Thank you. Um, just to get started uh, in a more general way, um, William Shakespeare, during his lifetime, were his plays received well? Uh, was he famous during his own lifetime? Yes, the plays were received very well. Writers tended not to be famous in the quite the same way as the theatre companies who performed their plays. Shakespeare was also an actor, but you no, know, the plays were really well received. Um, some of the ways we can tell that are that when Elizabeth I died and James I came to the throne, he became the company's patron and they were the company that put on all Shakespeare's plays for most of his career. Um, another way we can tell is that um, he became very rich off the back of his plays. Unusually for the time, he was a shareholder in his theatre company, so he made a bit of money from every um, performance of his plays. Many of his plays went through lots and lots of editions in print, which is quite impressive considering that literacy levels at the time in England obviously weren't that high. Um, and another way we can tell is that quite a lot of plays he didn't write were attributed to him by publishers, presumably in the hope of shifting more copies that way. And um, sorry, please, please go on. Oh, and um, one other thing which occurs to me is you do get people... Um, kind of literary critics at the time commenting on who the best writers are, and he typically makes it into those lists. Okay. Um, historians uh, speak about Shakespeare's missing years. Um, what are those missing years? What do historians conjecture? Did it happen in the middle of his career, at the end of his career, the missing years of Shakespeare? Yeah, so I find this particularly interesting because I was born and brought up in Stratford-upon-Avon, which is in Warwickshire in the in the Midlands, the English Midlands, which is also where Shakespeare was from. And the period that's most often called the missing years are between 1585 and 1592. So that's from Shakespeare's early 20s to his um, late 20s, early 30s. In 1585, Shakespeare is a young married man, father of three, in Stratford, and we know that his children, his twin children, Hamnet and Judith, are baptised in the church. And then there's very little recorded reference to him. Um, there's one reference in 1589 when he and his parents basically are involved in a family row with a bit of his mother's family about some land that's been mortgaged. So he's mentioned in a court case there. But we don't get another reference to him in print until 1592, when he's becoming established as a playwright and actor, and another writer essentially attacks him in print. So we kind of know, oh, he's in London, he's established then. So there is, there's a gap, um, 1585 to 1592, apart from this one mention in 1589. So where, where is he? And this has kind of interested scholars for a long time. And there've been all sorts of conjectures. Some were um, does he go abroad? Is he um, a tutor somewhere? Is he in some kind of noble, attached to some noble family house? I suspect the truth is less interesting. Well, not less interesting, but less sort of exciting. 
in the early modern period, it's not unusual not to know where people are, for people not to make it into the printed record. Um, most people of his class, we don't know what they're doing every day of their lives. His parents and his kind of extended family are in financial trouble in the, the mid-1580s. Um, I suspect he's just in Stratford working with his father, trying to earn money for quite a long time. There's some conjecture he starts writing in about 1589, 1590. That's when he heads to London. Unlike a lot of people working in theatre, particularly as writers in the 1580s, 1590s, he hasn't been to university. Um, writers like Ben Johnson, Christopher Marlowe, um, Thomas Nash, they've either had a kind of private school education or they've been to university. They've got family connections to London or to the theatre, in some cases, of people who become actors. He doesn't have any of this. Um, Travelling players had visited Stratford while he was growing up. We know that. Um, the thing I find really interesting about this period is why on earth, to put it mildly, he felt driven to leave his, his family, sorry, his family, his um, wife, his three little children, his parents who were in a really bad way financially. And, you know, his youngest sibling was only slightly older than his own children. He was the eldest surviving son. What drove him and how did his family react to you know, the idea that he would leave London? He wouldn't be so involved in any of his father's businesses. His father had been a glover, a wool dealer, a moneylender. And there's some suggestion he worked with animal skins. So not to help in the family business when the family is kind of in crisis financially, but to pursue this dream and go to London and be an actor and a playwright. Mm -hmm. Um, moving to um, the state of um, British Jewry uh, at the time, Jews are expelled from England in the 13th century. They don't return until the time of Cromwell. Mm -hmm. um, so what, when we talk about Shakespeare and the Jews, what are we talking about in England? The Jewish community, did he know any Jews? Were there secret Jews that that might have that he might have known? How, mm -hmm. how do we put this into its context? It's a big question, and it's a really fascinating one. Shakespeare would not have known openly practicing Jews, not people who felt they could practice their faith openly, and which I'm sure we'll get on to. There's clues in the plays. He doesn't know that much about Jews in some ways. Um, as you say, Edward I had expelled Jews from England, from Britain in the 1290s. Some had begun returning as refugees in the 1500s. These were usually um, either Jews who were still practicing their faith, but secretly coming back from um, Portugal, Spain, after the Spanish Inquisition, and some people who... Um, actually had converted to Catholicism, but were of Jewish ethnicity. And obviously with the persecution of Jews, people don't really distinguish. Um, Henry VIII had brought over some Italian families of Jewish descent as musicians. And, um, kind of, and, and there are a few kind of musical dynasties of the Tudor era. The most famous is the Bassano family, and Shakespeare would have known um, a lady called Amelia Lanya, Amelia Bassano Lanya, who was from that family. But because she she was the mistress of his patron at one point, there are a few um, a few kind of if you like celebrity Jews in early modern England whom he would have known of and might, as he became closer to the court, have known personally. Sometimes these are Jewish people who are working as translators. Sometimes they're involved with building up um, libraries and antiquarian collections of Hebrew documents. Sometimes, because Elizabethan England has a massive espionage network, you get individual kind of specialists who are involved either here or on the continent with um, English military or espionage assistance, um, someone like Hector Nunes. Sometimes you get translators. The most 
famous, um, most high profile Jew in England. Although I should say this is somebody who had been baptized Catholic as a baby for kind of pragmatic reasons by his family was Rodrigo Lopez. Now he had come over, um, become a high profile doctor in Britain and had risen to be the queen's physician as a kind of Portuguese refugee originally. Um, but then he is executed for allegedly plotting to poison her. I should say everything Shakespeare had been educated to believe of Jews would have been anti-Semitic. That kind of goes without saying that is the nature of an Elizabethan Christian education at the time. I don't think that Shakespeare had ever really travelled outside England. And it's worth noting that where we get much more sympathetic and rational and well-informed accounts of Jewish people by English Christians are people who have travelled. These are people who have gone to places like Venice or Amsterdam or Morocco or Turkey or Antwerp, and they have met Jewish communities and they've had those ideas challenged. Speaking of Rodrigo Lopez, um, what, what exactly happened there? What, what, what do historians think is the true account of what happened? And was Shakespeare influenced by this event? Rodrigo Lopez, as I said, he comes over from Portugal, like plenty of um, people who are either who are of Jewish, Jewish ethnicity and have or haven't been baptized as Catholic. He comes over and um, he's an immensely skilled physician. He he comes over initially as a Catholic. Then when Elizabeth I comes to the throne, he joins the Church of England. He builds his career. He's attached to St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. He has a lot of very high profile patients from Elizabeth I's circle, including Elizabeth herself. Throughout the Elizabethan period, there are many plots to assassinate or dethrone or otherwise harm Elizabeth. And a lot of those do have to do with Spanish Catholic interests. Philip II of Spain, who was married to Elizabeth's older sister, Mary. Um, he's the one who brings the Armada. He's felt to be at the center of this. A plot to poison the queen is allegedly uncovered. Rodrigo Lopez is blamed for this. He is executed and he absolutely protests his innocence. When he does protest his innocence, he does it in terms of the Christian religion. He says, you know, I love the Queen as I love Jesus Christ, but because of his Jewish heritage and the kind of anti-Semitic and anti-Portuguese, anti-Spanish suspicion that attaches to him, that's treated with derision and he is executed. How Shakespeare is influenced by him, there are certainly a number of plays featuring very unsympathetic depictions of Jewish characters in the wake of his execution. The most immediate one is by Christopher Marlowe and it's a play called The Jew of Malta in which Barabbas is the central character and the anti-hero. Shakespeare goes on to write The Merchant of Venice um, about, I suppose, seven or eight years later. So, it, it you know, it is a while later. Um, but the, although not the titular character, sometimes people think The Merchant of Venice in The Merchant of Venice is Shylock. It's not Shylock is the most compelling and most unusual character in that play. And sometimes people think that that's a kind of response to Rodrigo Lopez. I'm less sure that they're not biographically similar at all. You, you just mentioned Marlowe and, and the mm -hmm. Jew of Malta. Malta. Who was Marlowe? What was the Jew of Malta about? And is there a stronger connection between the Jew of Malta and Shakespeare than Lopez and Shakespeare? Um, to sort of answer the last bit first, I think, yes, definitely. Christopher Marlowe is a playwright and spy and poet who is born in um, Canterbury in Kent, so southeast of London, very slightly earlier than Shakespeare. The two are the two of they're of an age and in some ways from quite similar backgrounds. They've both got very enterprising men of many business 
local sort of area man marries well fathers. But Marlowe gets a scholarship to what we would call a public school, but a high, like a, a good private school. He goes on to Cambridge. He winds up in London. Shakespeare is from um, a, a, a much more kind of middle-class rural background. Both families go through financial difficulties. He doesn't go to university. He also winds up in London. And Shakespeare, I think, kept quite a close eye on Marlowe and was sort of fascinated by him. One of the things Shakespeare does really early in his career is um, during a time when the, the theatres are shut due to the plague, he writes um, two long classical narrative poems, kind of at the same time as Marlowe is doing this. Um, Marlowe and Shakespeare may have collaborated in a couple of early plays, but unlike Shakespeare, Marlowe comes to a very, very sticky end as a young man. He is betrayed by a fellow playwright, Thomas Kidd, under torture, and it's alleged that he's expressed some blasphemous and therefore illegal religious opinions. Um, we don't know if this is true, but Kidd alleges that Marlowe said essentially that um, Jesus was gay, had a gay relationship with St. John, that the Virgin Mary was sort of the opposite of a virgin, and that um, he, he says various uh, insulting things about the Church of England. And the Privy Council summons him. And then a few days later, he dies in a brawl in a house in Deptford, which is along the Thames. Sometimes it's called tavern. It's not really a tavern. But he's killed in a scuffle with several men, a couple of whom are members of the Elizabethan spying underworld. So that's Marlowe. And so this is a really scandalous and controversial death. But what's interesting is that despite this, lots of playwrights rushed to memorialise Marlowe at the time when you think you'd be like, I've never met Marlowe. I don't know the man. Nothing to see here. And even Shakespeare, who as a character tends to keep his hands really clean, tends to stay out of literary disputes. He doesn't tend to commit himself in print in the way some of his colleagues do. Um, he memorialises Marlowe by quoting him in a play called As You Like it. it. Lots of people have heard the phrase, whoever loved but loved not at first sight. And they tend to think it's Shakespeare. And it is Shakespeare in the sense it appears in As You Like It, but it's a quotation from Marlowe. The other thing that Marlowe really does, which influences Shakespeare, is he popularises the use of a line called, a style called, iambic pentameter and that's a line of verse which in rhythm goes de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum and Marlowe invents that kind of sound in English drama and Shakespeare loves it uses it a lot so Shakespeare's influenced by Marlowe in all sorts of areas of his career and one of the plays Marlowe writes he doesn't write that many because he dies is the Jew of Malta and it's the tale of a villainous but extremely charismatic Machiavellian Maltese Jew called Barabbas and his dealings, which involve a lot of murder until he finally gets his comeuppance, with um, competing Christian and Muslim political factions that are trying to take over Malta at the time. And as I said, Barabbas is compelling, charismatic, unscrupulous, violent, terrible. He is both an anti-Semitic portrayal and a really interesting theatrical character to play. And as in um, The Merchant of Venice, one of the plots, which is in both plays, is that Barabbas and Shylock both have apparently very beautiful daughters who fall in love with, and in Jessica, Shylock's daughter's case, marry Christian men and they are both ultimately overcome and defeated by the Christian characters in the play. I think Shakespeare was probably more interested in Marlowe than he was in Lopez. Yeah. Um, the Merchant of Venice, right? Which mm -hmm. you go online and you just find thousands and thousands of 
articles. Um, and of course, one of one of the debates is, uh, is it anti-Semitic? Is it not anti-Semitic? Is it simply a product of its time? Um, is the character uh, truly a villain? Though, he, though there's parts that one would say that he's he's not a villain. He's expressing mm -hmm. he's a, he's, a, he's expressing things that are humanitarian. He's part of humanity. What's the argument to say that the Merchant of Venice was not anti-Semitic? I should start this by saying I think the play as written is anti-Semitic. Okay. I think, yeah, and I think that um, it is at the same time highly possible and many successful productions have been done which are not anti-Semitic. I think there's a difference between the text and the ways you can perform and interpret the text. I think the kind of the arguments that one can make that it's not anti-Semitic are, as you say, that Shakespeare, Shakespeare does give Shylock this incredibly sympathetic and rational and tragic speech where he's rightly furious about the terrible anti-Semitic treatment he's had from the Christian characters. When he, you know, he, he makes the point about the common humanity between Jews and Christians, you know, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed? that he compares all the different organs, faculties, emotions, and experiences that Jews and Christians have. And that is, th there is no comparable speech in any modern drama. This is unique in the kind, in the sort of the sympathetic, tragic, nuanced portrayal of a Jewish character that sits in the middle of what I think is an anti-Semitic play. You also have, there's some very moving moments when Tubal, who is another Jewish character, who's Sherlock's friend, has been trying to trace Jessica, who has eloped with Lorenzo, um, and says rather tactlessly that um, Jessica has exchanged a, a turquoise ring for a monkey that she wanted to buy. And there's a moment where Sherlock says, oh, you know, the turquoise, I had it of Leah when I was a bachelor. I would not have given it for a wilderness of monkeys. And we get this little vignette there, you know, Leah, maybe that's his late wife. It's, it's a very moving little moment. And um, there is, so what I find interesting is, as so often with Shakespeare, it's not a simple portrayal. There are lots of really anti-Semitic bits in the play, which is kind of unsurprising for the time. But then you get this much more complex emotional challenge to the plot of the play by making Shylock so tragic at this moment. And it's that reading which has tended um, to interest actors more since the late 19th century in England. But it, it, if it's done properly, I think the play should be very uncomfortable because the, the kind of Christian plot and the tragedy of Jewish identity really, really kind of trouble and mess each other up. You, you you say that it's it's possible to to um, portray Shylock um, where it's not um, tremendously overtly anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. um, let, let's just go to I guess the presentation that is extremely anti-Semitic, and that's how it was done by Nazi Germany uh, and how they portrayed uh, the Merchant of Venice, which I, from my reading, I was pretty popular. Yeah, during Nazi Germany. Yes. And so one huge change that comes in in Germany and then in Austria and other countries which the Nazis occupy is that pretty unsurprisingly, until then, Jewish artists and actors have been really important to the cultural life of those nations. And the Nazis take steps really quickly to ensure that Jews aren't on mainstream stages anymore and the Jewish influence on theatre is massively diminished. Fairly unsurprisingly, under Nazi ideology, Shylock becomes an anti-Semitic caricature and the play is a comedy. It's a, it's a comedy and Shylock is the butt of the joke. So there's a very famous um, 1943 production in Vienna during the war which is directed by a Nazi party member and stars Werner Krauss as Shylock. And he portrays Shylock really explicitly um, as the Nazi idea of an Eastern European Jew in particular. So he's avaricious, he's cruel, he's physically dirty. And um, 
sympathetic lines are either cut or they're played for laughs as ridiculous and um it's intended to give people at the theater a chance to laugh at shylock um comparing that to um 2004 the motion uh, picture movie of the merchant of venice starring none other than al pacino how did they handle that whole issue, I, I would assume that there was a sensitivity there uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the anti-Semitism. How did that movie handle the issue? That film, which is, I think, a completely fascinating and so beautiful to look at. It's all filmed in Venice. It does several things. Um, it does several things, actually, that Shakespeare doesn't do in the text. Um, one of the things in Shakespeare's text um, that Shylock alleges about Antonio, the merchant of Venice, is that Antonio um, has spat at him um, because he's Jewish. And in the film, we see that. We see Jeremy Irons as Antonio spit really viciously and disgustingly at Shylock. And that is very early on. Um, it's completely horrible, unprovoked, unforgivable. And it, and it sets up that this play um, this film, rather, is, is a tragedy. What happens to Shylock is tragic. Um, it's built around the incredibly um, bravura-moving landmark performance by Al Pacino as Shylock. It also gives us something Shakespeare doesn't, which is an historically accurate picture of the oppression of Jewish people in 16th century Venice. Now, Shakespeare doesn't really know a lot about Venice. He's got a kind of first page of the travel guide idea of what Venice is like. He knows there are Jewish people. He knows there's canals. He knows there's gondolas. He knows there's a doge. And he knows there's a bridge called the Rialto. What he doesn't seem to know, because he never mentions it, is that Jews live in a ghetto in Venice at this time, that they have to dress in certain ways, that they're locked in at night. He doesn't know any of this, or he would mention it. But the film really emphasizes the degree to which Jews are a spatially, financially, ethnically, religiously oppressed class. Something else the film does is in how it handles Portia. So Portia in Shakespeare's play is the heroine, the Christian heroine, who disguises herself as a lawyer in the trial scene to defeat Shylock. Shylock has lent some money to Antonio to help Bassanio go and woo Portia. And he says that as a forfeit, he wants a pound of Antonio's flesh. Everyone treats this as a joke, but then Antonio can't pay. And Shylock's like, right, pound of flesh time. And Portia is the um, girl disguised as a boy lawyer who defeats Shylock in court. Through the rest of the play, Portia is in Shakespeare's text, quite racist about a series of men who come to woo her, one of whom is the Prince of Morocco, and she makes it very clear that she doesn't want to marry a black man, which is a line that audiences might find troubling today. And the film, to really focus in on the anti-Semitism, cuts all the ways in which Portia is offensive about people from different identities. And the final way which I find particularly interesting because it's a part of the plot that fascinates me, is um, with Shylock's daughter, Jessica. Now in Shakespeare's play, Jessica elopes with a young Christian man, Lorenzo. Um, we're told that she can, and we're told that she converts. They stay married through the rest of the play. And this is a plot which has troubled critics for centuries. It's, it's troubled critics who were themselves not sympathetic to Shylock, because it shows a girl disobeying and disowning her father. And as I mentioned earlier, Jessica is the character who exchanges her father's turquoise ring for a monkey. And this has always really bothered critics. And how the film deals with this is it makes it clear that um, Jessica remains Jewish. She remains true to her identity and she's really unhappy in her converted marriage and the final moments of the film after Shylock has slunk away a really broken and defeated man who's going to be forced to convert to Christianity is we see Jessica at the edge of the Venetian lagoon alone 
miserable and she's got the turquoise ring on her hand and it's kind of symbolic of the fact that you know she's not the palace daughter who's abandoned her father and her fate actually she's kind of trapped and so it's not just a tragedy for Shylock it's also a tragedy for Jessica as you consult, Dr. Duncan, you consult um, theaters and, and, and the radio, television. Um, I, I, I get it that that the text has different interpretations, but but do you feel that that some of the um, portrayals of Shakespeare's work, the verse of Venice and others, they they just steer so far away from the original intent? In other words, this, a movie like this. Okay, so. It tries to give you all the context. Now, Shakespeare doesn't give you that context. So is that kind of, you know, uh, doing an injustice to, to Shakespeare? I mean, he wrote a play, given what he knows, and now we're trying to figure out, you know, how to present it, how to make it look, you know, I don't know, uh, better, politically correct. Uh, how, when you consult, like, how, how do you how do you view these things? I think every production, every adaptation has to strike a balance. I'm not particularly worried, I have to say, about doing an injustice to Shakespeare. We, we can't hurt Shakespeare. Um, and the really good thing is if you don't like a particular production or take on Shakespeare, it's like buses. There'll be another one along in a minute. You can't damage him. He's not around to hurt. Um, if if he were or his family were still somehow collecting, you know, box office receipts, they'd be fine. You can't hurt Shakespeare. I think sometimes because Shakespeare is so culturally revered in the UK and around the world, there is a real desire either to topple him kind of for the sake of it or to insist, no, no, he's a, he was a great man who only wrote things that really fit the ideas of our time. One of the things a friend of his said when he died was, you know, he was not of an age, but for all time. And I think, you know, history has shown that people from all groups, all situations have found inspiration, comfort, excitement, education, provocation in Shakespeare. On the other hand, he is of an age and I think sometimes there there are considerations to be had about is it worth trying to make a particular play that has ob objectionable content look like it doesn't have objectionable content or should we do another play or is it is it fine are there new things to be said when I'm consulting as opposed to say when I'm teaching because I I you know I work with theatre companies and I also teach the plays to undergraduates when I'm consulting on a piece of theatre, the priority is, is this going to make a good piece of theatre? That's what matters. You know, I provide historical context and information and whatever any company wants, but they have to think, does this work? It's not a lecture. It's not a documentary. It's a piece of theatre. Will this be an effective and engaging piece of theatre? When I'm teaching, then it is about the facts and it's the, the literary and the historical facts that have to come first. Okay. Aside from, from Shylock, um, what are the other references uh, to Jews, the Jewish people that we find in Shakespeare and how are those various references interpreted? There are a, there's kind of a considerable sprinkling, if you like, of references to Jews in Shakespeare. We don't otherwise have Jewish characters, but you get a lot of figurative rhetorical references to the Jews, and you find those through his career. So there's a very early play called Two Gentlemen of Verona, where a, a, a comic character is speaking to the audience, and he's trying to say that something was incredibly sad, and he says... I mean, forgive me, these references aren't pleasant, but he says a Jew would have wept. And that's based on the proverbial idea that Jews were hard-hearted. In the play Macbeth, which has scenes of witchcraft, which have lots of gruesome and kind of body part-based ingredients, um, one of the witches describes using 
liver of blaspheming Jew. And that's based on, I think, the idea, first of all, blaspheming Jew, that's the idea that anybody who's not a Christian is blasphemous. And it's kind of in a list of exotic and disturbing ingredients. Um, you also occasionally get characters saying, you know, if, if such and such isn't true or such and such is true, or I'm a Jew. And all these figures of speech are really about Jews as kind of avatars of difference. Jews as being very, very unlike Christian characters or sort of everyday English people at the time. Very few of these claims actually make any meaningful, positive claims about what Jewish people are like. And again, this is because most English people at the time are really, really ignorant about Jews. They have not met many Jews. Their ideas of what Jewish people are like are derived from fiction and history. In The Merchant of Venice, I, we, we mentioned there's a kind of pound of flesh motif, the idea that um, Shylock wants a pound of flesh when his bond with Antonio is forfeited. That comes from a piece of early medieval folklore. There's a kind of folklore idea of the Jewish person trying to get a pound of the Christian flesh, which is repeated through folk tales. And that's sort of the level of Christian Gentile knowledge of Jews at the time. It's from really anti-Semitic, libelous stuff in history. It's not based on knowing Jewish people at all. No references to the Jewish Bible, to the Old Testament? No no references that hark back to that, that have some kind of motif that ties to that in Shakespeare? You get that in The Merchant of Venice. There's um, a discussion of money lending, and Shylock makes the, the, the Jewish scriptural case for it being okay. Something that's really fascinating there is that... Um, Shakespeare lent money and his father had actually been prosecuted for lending money within with interest usury which was illegal so I always think it's interesting that he has his father he, he has Shylock do on stage something that his father had done mm -hmm. um so there, there are small small references but it's it's seen through the kind of Christian lens okay and, and nothing that touches on blood libels which coincidentally started in England that's that's not doesn't come up in any of Shakespeare's works you get small small references that are kind of in the tenor of that um the anti-semitism that runs through the Merchant of Venice and is occasionally mentioned in the history plays although it doesn't always overtly refer to the blood libel that's what kind of underscores the um the kind of tenor of those remarks the idea of the blood libel and that Jews are bloodthirsty. He's okay. less overt than say Marlowe is. Okay. Marlowe is in your face. Oh yeah. And, and Marlowe, for example, is is also like that about Islam. Marlowe burns the Quran on stage. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And Dr. Duckett, you've written extent extensively about and published on Romeo and Juliet. Um, which you know captures the imagination in, in all different ages. And I think uh, there was a recent movie. Was there a Spielberg movie? Um, uh, yes, Romeo and Juliet. Now, um, mm -hmm. is there any Jewish connection to Romeo and Juliet? There is, and and actually, there's several connections in all sorts of different ways. Um, an early connection is in the 1930s. Hollywood does a big, the first big. Um, non-silent film of Romeo and Juliet, which has a um, almost entirely Jewish creative team, and um, that includes all, all people you know of Jewish heritage. So Leslie Howard, Norma Shearer, um, George Cukor. It's it's tremendous amounts of Jewish talent. What's very ironic is that they come over to fascist-ruled Italy to do a lot of the um, research for the production and do lots of images and they come to Verona which is a real fascist stronghold but 
what can I say? Fascists love cinema. Most of like the 20th century leading fascists were massive cinema fans. They fall over themselves to accommodate this movie. It has a big screening in Verona. So that's the kind, it's a slightly concealed Jewish connection. The really big one that comes later is West Side Story. Uh, West Side Story, the most um, famous and actually to my mind, the most successful adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Now, the play, the musical play and the film we all know of Romeo and Juliet is about a Polish Catholic boy and a Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican Catholic girl who meet in Manhattan. That's not how the story was originally conceived. So in the late 1940s, actually through to the mid 50s, when this project was going through a long and slow development, um, the creative team behind it, so Jerome Robbins, Arthur Lawrence, Leonard Bernstein, and then Stephen Sondheim, who's brought on board, they intend this to be a play where the Juliet character is Jewish. That's where they begin. That's their starting point. And originally, it was going to be the story of a Jewish girl who comes to the big city and meets this Catholic boy and her family. Um, they experience the loss of their eldest son, the kind of Tybalt equivalent. And the, the kind of musical centerpiece was going to be a Seder. It was going to be that the news of the death of the firstborn comes at that point in the Passover Seder. So you're going to have a Seder on stage. Um, it was, and there were going to be, you know, lots of influences from Jewish music. In particular, there was going to be um, a real sense for the Juliet character, whose family had lived elsewhere in America. They they haven't just arrived in New York, um, but they've they've come to New York from elsewhere in the States, that they've come from a place of tolerance and that they are assimilated, integrated American Jews who find themselves in a situation of real prejudice. And that was the idea for a long time. It was going to be um, a, a musical that responded to street gangs and anti-Semitic violence in the aftermath of World War II in New York. The the play, the, the kind of production broke down for a few years because of the creative disagreements. And when they went back to the project, by that point, a lot of Puerto Ricans had moved to New York. Um, the news coverage was very much about Puerto Rican, um, Puerto, Puerto Ricans and the racism they were facing. And that was the direction in which it went. But when the musical opened in Washington, that's where it opened before New York, they actually had very early on a gala night on Leonard Bernstein's birthday, where people bought Israeli bonds. So there was a real kind of Jewish-Israeli identity to the opening of West Side Story, which I find completely fascinating. Wow. Uh, in, in America, and I don't know if it's elsewhere in the world, you see um, statutes being torn down. You see um, streets being street names being changed, buildings being changed. Uh, has this happened at all to Shakespeare? anywhere in the world? Or again, as you said, you can't really touch Shakespeare's legacy and reputation because of, you know, the times that he came from. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, there are lots of scholars doing really interesting and important work on the ways in which Shakespeare has, Shakespeare's plays have contained or endorsed racism or the ways in which um, different political movements have used them to legitimize their own appalling views. You know, the Nazis love Shakespeare. They, the thing is though, that I think Shakespeare has been quoted on both sides of every major political or religious argument there is. You can, as with many important bodies of text, make Shakespeare argue almost anything you want to. There is, um, at the level of the curriculum, what's taught in schools, always, and I think rightly, a concern to offer young people a wider range of writers and to make sure that they hear and are exposed to different styles of literature from different people in different times. And 
I think that's really important. I try to teach a diverse range of writers. I do, though, still think. And it's probably hideously overdetermined. I started off by saying I was born and brought up in Stratford-on-Avon. It gets worse. My parents met working for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. I had a summer job working in Shakespeare's birthplace. You know, I'm a fully, I'm a fully paid up member of Big Shakespeare. But I do think including acting, the, including acting. Um, I, I, I wanted to be an actress when I was growing up, certainly, and I, you know, and I directed productions at university and all that kind yeah. of thing. But I do still think he's the greatest. English speaking writer and I add the caveat of English speaking because obviously I haven't read many writers in first languages other than English and I think it's right that we keep on kind of interrogating Shakespeare as we do with lots of writers and lots of different historical phenomena people do get very worried about the toppling of statues one thing I would say to that is that we don't now have all the statues in England that were up in the 1500s, 1600s. You know, the the reappraisal of our public monuments is a process that's been going on for hundreds of years. And sometimes it's a very good thing. So I think Shakespeare is pretty safe and pretty enduring, and we won't be seeing his toppling anytime soon. But that doesn't mean there isn't more to say and more to interrogate. He is in a huge number of ways, somebody who seems to transcend his age and speak to people of all backgrounds and all persuasions um, across the centuries. He is also someone who reproduces some of the biases and prejudices of his age, certainly. Both can be true. What, what is um, your favourite Shakespeare play? Oh, this is such a good question. And I I get asked it fairly often. So okay. you think I would have a really pat answer ready. Um, and I I entirely don't. I have three. One is Twelfth Night, um, which is sort of a, a, a it's 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 one of his last latest comedies. It's a very funny but also very um bittersweet, gender bending comedy that has a huge amount to say about grief and madness and frustrated desire. And that, I think, is the perfect one to see, the perfect one to teach. Another one is Richard II. So that's your mid-1590s entirely verse history play, which is about the deposition of a king, about a king who is usurped and it was considered a very controversial play. You couldn't play the deposition scene on stage in Elizabeth I's time. And the question that play wrestles with is, can God's anointed king cease to be a king? Can, can you kind of ontologically cease to be royal? And what happens? It's also very much a play about a family. A cousin usurps a cousin. And then the play which makes me cry is The Winter's Tale. Um, it's a late play, it's a kind of tragicomic romance where a king believes his pregnant wife has committed adultery with his best friend and he puts her on trial um, and he's wrong of course and his wife dies uh, having given birth to their daughter in prison, she dies it's very hard for me to talk about this play if any of your podcast viewers listeners would like to read it I don't want to spoil it but there is a moment at the end that just makes me weep it's so so beautiful um during the pandemic um, I run play readings at Oxford during the pandemic when we couldn't meet in person to do our play readings we did one on zoom of the winter's tale and my first years hadn't read the play before which is great and so I got to see them experience the ending for the first time. I was a mess. It was wonderful. So those are my three for very different reasons. Okay. And, and one more question to put you on the spot. Your your favorite <laughs> Shakespeare quote. Oh, um, okay, so one is from The Winter's Tale, but I don't want to spoil the ending to okay. anyone who goes okay. and reads it. Because um, 
there is so this is a different play in a midsummer night's dream um there is a scene with a cat fight between two women and um they've been best friends since school helena and hermia they've grown up together and um they become entangled in a love triangle well a love rectangle actually by this point in the play and helena is very kind of tall and willowy and hermia is short she is little and dark and as it happens you can't i'm sitting there i am very short so um and hermia is a part always ended up playing at school and university and during the fight helena brings up hermia's lack of height and hermia loses it and um helena says um she asks the boys in this love rectangle to defend her she says she was a vixen when she went to school and though she be but little she is fierce and i think i think that's a great description um of this small angry furious hermia and it's also one of the funniest scenes in shakespeare it's completely actor proof you can do it with schools you can do it with students it's it's so that always makes me laugh i think it's a great line and and one again one final question what what's what's next on on your research or project that you're working on now yeah well i'm i'm mulling a few things over at the moment because i've done the searching for juliet book available where all good books are sold sure. and now i'm now i'm sort of looking about myself a bit i'm really interested in the legacies of shakespeare and the british slave trade so i'm working on something to do with that hmm. but um as to the next book project it's kind of watch this space because i'm developing a few things at the moment i would like to do um so searching for juliet is kind of a a biography of the character juliet and the way she's been interpreted over four centuries the next project i would like it to be another kind of biography but whether it will be someone fictional or someone real i haven't quite decided Yeah, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, we urge our, oh, thank you so much. our viewers and listeners to go online and and uh, and purchase uh, Dr. Duncan's <laughs> recent book, Romeo and Juliet. And um, again, uh, we could go on and on. There's, you know, this is just the the beginning of Shakespeare, but uh, our time is up. And uh, Dr. Duncan, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very much. Oh well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a del delight. Thank you. Thank you.